Welcome to the Young IPA Podcast. I'm James. This is Pete. G'day, everyone. Episode 187, the 29th of September. Fun show coming up. We are going to be talking to the IPA Spin Doctor, our Director of Communications, Evan Mulholland. Been a big week for the IPA. We're going to be talking about the poll that we released uh, on the weekend, and then we're just going to run through some of the uh, stories that are happening at state politics, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, even the uh, implications of what's going on in Queensland for other hard border states like Western Australia. That's a really fun, long-ranging chat. And uh, then we're also going to be talking to Sachit Mara from the Reason Foundation. He is a friend of ours who is in Washington, D.C. We haven't talked about America for a while, obviously. Election coming up in a month and a half. I'm speaking very quickly. I've just had two coffees, which is unprecedented for me. (laughs) But that interview with Sachit was at like 7 a.m. this morning, so we've needed them. But uh, where was I? Yeah, good chat. So Amy Coney Barrett. The Supreme Court pick, we're going to be talking about the implications of that and uh, just, yeah, the situation in America. Pete, what are you looking forward to this week? Well, I can't believe I'm shocked you do this show on one coffee normally. I'm always on my third by the time I get here, sometimes on my fourth, so that's something wow. to think about. If um, I have two coffees in one day, I get jittery and anxious. So if halfway <laughs> through the show, I start like really just spacing out a bit, that's what that is. Yeah, no, uh, but apart from that, what I'm looking forward to, we're looking forward to getting into an issue in Tasmania, which we haven't talked about yet, which is really important, and also always good to speak on speak to our man on the ground in the United States, Satya, so from the Reason Foundation, fantastic stuff. Yeah, that Tasmania story is big, so we are going to be talking to uh, him, uh, sorry, we are going to be talking about that later in the show, all right, but the first thing we want to talk about is this uh, new report that the IPA released today. So this is Tuesday, released today, uh, basically modelling what elimination strategies, which they may not say it, but clearly is kind of what state governments are going for and the federal government are walking away from it, but it is being the kind of idea we want to get coronavirus out of the country. Now, we're talking about the real costs of that. So Pete, talk us through it. Yeah, so this was written by Daniel Wild and Asher Judah, who's an uh, adjunct associate of the Institute of Public Affairs. Anyway, they found that, the yeah, as you mentioned, the elimination strategies adopted by the Commonwealth and state governments could cost up to $319 billion, the equivalent of 23% of GDP from 2020 to 22. Now, that figure is equal to the combined government Commonwealth government expenditure of 2018-2019 on defence, education, health and social security and welfare combined. Now, uh, the report recommends that governments end the elimination strategy and the associated lockdowns and instead implement a strategy based on what they call medical capacity, which is risk-based, proportionate, and targeted. Um, So, look, the main thing that came out of this report from me, James, apart from the enormous cost, so it sort of gives us a bit of context about the massive cost, but it is once again this idea that we are not all in this together. It's the private sector, it's small businesses, it's young people which are bearing the brunt of this, whilst, as Dan points out, uh, the public sector in many ways could be described as flourishing. There's more public servants and they're getting paid more than ever before. So that's the main takeout for me. Yeah, mine is uh, similar. It's just the idea that, no one wants coronavirus to exist in their country. Like that, it's a worthy goal to get elimination, but because uh, just no one wants it there. But it's not this uh, achievable goal. I mean, and there are no other numbers that come in. If you gen- genuinely want zero cases and you're going to shut the economy down to, to the point where you get zero cases, 
The other numbers you need to look at is what's happening in Australia, where there's 185,000 people who've simply given up and left the labor force altogether. Mm. Those are, sorry, 185,000 between the ages of 15 and 24 who have just left the labor force. You wonder how many are going to come back and how quickly they're going to be able to come back. Uh, 283,500 people between 15 and 24 are unemployed and 484,400 people are not working the hours that they would prefer. So if you want zero cases... That's the trade-off. It's uh, and it's yeah. It's like the report says. We've got to learn how to live with this virus. You can't eliminate a virus forever. It doesn't look like a vaccine is going to be coming for at least six months. I mean, there's now conjecture that it's going to be three or four years. If you really want to live like this for the next three or four years, uh, you 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 have a different mental makeup to me because I'm sure that a lot of people are really struggling, not just economically but also socially, and these things can't last forever. Yeah, and I think we're sort of the public debate and the government has fallen into this either or scenario where, you know, it's the economy or people's lives. But there's a number of things that you can be doing that to improve how we look after people with COVID. Tra- treatments are improving. Uh, you know, we always talk about these studies that are emerging that show targeted lockdowns of people who are in vulnerable groups are more effective than blanket lockdowns. Contact tracing, which we know has been an issue in Victoria, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, it's not an either-or scenario. We can get better at handling COVID um, and at the same time not incur the massive costs that we're incurring on ourselves that we may never be able to measure and will go on for years and years. So, yeah. And that's just the case. Like, Australia is just completely looking at new daily case numbers. Like, that's the only metric of anything that's mm. worth applying. But when, uh, And that would lead you to think we need an elimination strategy if that's the only number. But when you talk about hospitalizations or maybe like percentage of beds taken up by victims of COVID, maybe the situation would be a bit different. Uh, so you can check that out on the Australian website. It's got a lot of coverage there. You can also check out the report itself on ipa.org.au. Uh, really interesting stuff. It's all over our social media pages as well. Okay, we'll move on to another story. And this is to do with Victoria. Apologies to our interstate listeners uh, who are probably sick of the Victoria coverage by now. But I mean, you talk about individual liberties, you talk about economic outlook. Victoria is struggling more than any other state right now. And it was a big weekend for Victorian politics. So I'm calling this a big win for the IPA. I think Pete, you're with me as well. Evan certainly was when we talked to him about it later on the show. But on Saturday, the IPA released a poll showing uh, that asked Victorians a statement that Victorian government ministers responsible for mismanagement of the hotel quarantine program should resign. 54% of people agreed. And mere hours later, Jenny McCarkos hands in her resignation. She's a health minister here. Uh, it was basically Daniel Andrews' evidence that Jenny McCarkos his department was responsible for the hotel quarantine program. Sorry, within two hours of this IPA poll coming out, she resigns. Pete, your thoughts? Well, I think that's certainly a win for the IPA and particularly the undertaker, which is what we call Evan Mulholland here at the IPA. Well, it's what I call him sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, that's a strong (laughs) word. The royal we. The royal we, yeah, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, obviously we had the inquiry last week here in Victoria. Well, it's still going, but but a lot of the ministers were interviewed last week in the inquiry about hotel quarantine. It was all this, I don't know, I don't know, don't recall, blah, 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 including the Premier, Daniel Andrews. And I think, you know, a couple of things stuck out for me. Firstly, it's like, this is how governments work, all right? I don't think there's some grand conspiracy where they all know what happened and and they're sweeping under the carpet. I just think that this is how big, complicated organisations that are governments work and that they just booked hotel, they booked private security because, I don't know, that's what the bureaucrat who organised it did last time. Like, they don't, 
There's no, they've not, no idea why they did it. No one's taking responsibility for it. And yeah, this is it what... seems to be, and like I don't have evidence for this one. I, apparently, no one does, but it does seem to be that the Victoria Police just did not want to do hotel quarantine. So then it just became yeah. the place. Okay, we'll use private security guards instead, which is you know this whole idea that like, well, I don't want to do it. Leading a incredibly important part of our coronavirus response is concerning. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, too hard, you know, I don't want to annoy the Federation and, you know, expose the members to getting to getting COVID and stuff like that, whatever the reason is, but yeah. Uh, so this is like when governments tell you they can fix really complicated problems like climate change and COVID and things like that, you have to be wary of the fact because there's like limited things to what governments can do. So there's an example of that. But what I like, the main thing I want to take out of this, James, out of this whole thing, out of andrews and victoria and stuff is that this is progressivism this is not about you know andrews is a terrible bloke and his government's crap and that's why this happened although those things might be true um it's about this is what the ideology of progressivism leads us with greg sheridan wrote an awesome piece in the oz a few weeks back um and it was called why daniel andrews was rooting out sexism in fairy tales victoria's health team was overlooked and it's about how in progressivism it's a it's the gesture that's more important than actual governing. It's like, it's about, as long as you sort of support the right causes and you have the right amount of emotion when you support the right causes, it doesn't actually matter how you govern and that's how you get a situation like this. And if you look at us compared to New South Wales, New South Wales has twice as many public health employees as we have at the start of the pandemic. And Daniel Andrews' private office had more public health, uh, more employees than the public health um, office. And um, Victoria has per capita, the least public health employees in Australia compared to other um, all the other states. And it's like, that's what has been more important than actually governing. And, and, and Victoria's been left-wing for for decades. Like, you know, we've been, since 2014, Victoria's had a left-wing government. For most of the last four years, we've had a left-wing government. Yet our public health system is, is less well-resourced than other states. Like, that's crazy to think about. It shows you this change between social democracy of the past, the old school social democracy and the progressivism of today where gesture is more important. And that's the key lesson to take out of this, I think. Uh, very, very well argumented. That was good. Let's take that out and make that a promo. Uh, <laughs> the other thing I want to talk about is the actual Makakos resignation itself. Now, I like alluded to before that it was a big win for the IPA. If only Jenny Mikakos's resignation actually acknowledged the fact that her department was responsible, but it didn't. And she went when, when she went down, it was a spicy situation. Very spicy. This was a quote from her resignation letter. I've never wanted to leave a job unfinished, but in light of the Premier's statement to the Board of Inquiry and the fact that there are elements in it that I strongly disagree with, I believe that I cannot continue to serve in his cabinet. Not that I did it, not that I think I did it, not that the evidence says that I did it, but that, that the Premier said I did it means that I can't resign. So apparently ministerial responsibility is out the window, but that's spicy. And then when she does hand in her resignation, she then follows it up with a text to Daniel Andrews. That's all we have is that, yeah, she texted me and I haven't been able to contact her since. So I reckon she has texted um, uh, maybe a strong word, uh, strong word you i quit and then turn the phone off for a couple of days and yeah. uh that's what i reckon's happened that's a spicy exit i reckon there's more to play out yeah i think it was definitely she gave him a piece of her mind i think that you know they decided right we're gonna have to give the public someone and it's gonna be jenny um but you and i james have been on a journey with jenny mccarkos if you remember like not long ago no one knew who the the health minister in victoria was you know last year but then there came out that story that she had been was it doing Parting shots in and- bali 
That's it, yeah, yeah. To doing shots. Was she criticised by the alcohol people? Maybe for doing shots. Anyway, I said that I supported her because, you know, she's middle-aged and she's still partying it up. But and since then, her star rose and now it's crashed down again. So I don't know if she's one for the podcast bump or the podcast reverse bump. But, uh, um, I reckon she exists in both categories. And yeah, interesting the stuff about Andrews at the Inquiry because... The evidence he gave, Daniel Andrews is the kind of guy that like looks like he's apologizing to you, where you'll have a you'll have a disagreement with them, you'll go, okay, no, we patched it up, it was all good, he apologized. And then you've got to sit there and go, hang on, he never actually said I'm sorry. Yeah. He never actually, why do I think he did? He's got that idea where he looks contrite, he sounds contrite, he's, sound, he's saying all the right things, but he's never actually apologizing and taking responsibility. Oh, he's the king of that manipulative... You can see how he's controlled Vic Labor for 10 years. Like, it's that sort of... Uh, very careful with his words. He knows exactly what his messages are. He's only going to say those. If you ask him a question, he'll say, I haven't been briefed or, you know, there's no alternative. And then to state the straw man and then argue the straw man beautifully. And the best person I saw take him up on that was Luke Darcy when he was interviewed Luke Darcy on Triple M. And he said some statement and, and Luke Darcy jumped in and said, yeah, but no one's saying that, Premier. No one's saying that. What we're, all we're saying is this. So anyway, um, yeah. no, you're right. You're right, James. It was sort the of The king of, of the, I'm sorry you feel that way, as opposed yeah. to I'm sorry I did that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if anyone's been offended, then I'm, I'm yeah. sorry. But uh, All right. Sorry. The other thing we'll get through with Victoria was the new roadmap came out. This one seems to be a bit of an acceleration on the path. Uh, the stuff nice that pun, we mate. got on Sunday was... Slightly okay. Um, I mean, the curfew's gone. Woo. We'll talk about... I want to talk about the curfew later in the show, but it's been replaced with a fine for new gatherings of $5,000. So, which I would say, why wasn't that the strategy from the start? Why did we need a curfew when you could have just said, okay, but if you do have a party, it's a fine? Why did everyone have to suffer under a curfew? Uh, so liberal. People couldn't exercise when they wanted if you can just replace it with a fine. Well, because, I mean, that's what... Dan and Jenny and Brett and Annalise thought of this week, James. They just put it up on the big whiteboard and that's what they're running with. But um, yeah, so five grand. I mean, that's heaps. Like 1,600 was already the biggest fine in the world according to some, something that I read in the paper today. So to, to increase it to 5,000 is massive and is going to, you know, like it's, it's mostly vulnerable people that are breaking these rules and, you know, to hit them with a 5K fine is massive i think they're probably responding to the fact that more and more people are actually flouting the the laws uh but the biggest one for me was primary school students to return but that's really good thing we talked about that with david limbrick on the show um about how you know we we, we had made the decision as a society to put the well-being of adults ahead of the well-being of kids which is unusual um and it's good that at the moment we're sort of seeming like we're reversing that because that is took a massive toll on parents and kids to keep them at home. So I'm really glad about that one. But yeah, the curfews, the science must have changed, I guess. Yeah, with the primary school ones, like he said, okay, we've got this new evidence that shows that infections among young children like that and the ability for young children to spread it show that there's not much of a correlation. I thought we knew that since like May. That's not you. <laughs> there's no yeah, way that's that was, I've known that for a while. And then, I mean, my heart goes out to listeners we have in the hospitality and... Uh, retail sectors, I mean, we had Dom Telemedidis on the show a few weeks ago, it would have been going, oh, accelerated roadmap, and then there's absolutely nothing for hospitality or retail in there, which is disgusting. Now, the other interesting part of this is through all of these roadmaps and all of these ideas, we've had pretty much a, an agreement from Scott Morrison and the Federal Libs going like, okay, this is the plan. Um, you know, maybe some minor quibbling, but certainly Bill Shorten had the strongest one where he goes... I thought this was the worst case scenario, but now it's the plan. But anyway, 
update this week has been Scott Morrison, Josh Frydenberg, Health Minister Greg Hunt have uh, put the blowtorch to the Premier. They made a statement saying... Uh, basically calling on the roadmap to be, like even the Sunday roadmap to be accelerated even more. As many epidemiologists have encouraged, which we would support Victoria in reviewing the trigger of five and zero cases with regards to the third and last steps, which is a huge part of the Andrews plan. Uh, he didn't take too kindly to it in the press conference I watched yesterday, just saying like, I thought we were just going to get on with the job. I thought that's what Scott Morrison wanted us to do, but I don't know. It's it's finally come up that we're getting some pressure from the federal government to open up a bit. Yeah, he he was pretty critical. He was oh, not I wouldn't say pretty critical, but he was a bit critical three weeks ago when they introduced that other, the first roadmap version one. But you're right. A lot of Victorians have felt let down by the fact that they've got this you know prime minister there who's clearly supports a different strategy. But in the interest of national unity, whatever that means, um, didn't want to go after Dan Andrews, particularly when you think about how hard he went after Anastasia Palaszczuk up in Queensland. You know, like he really inserted himself in the debate there, um, and you know you could argue that that helped instigate change with regards to the um, border with ACT. So, yeah. I think a lot of Victorians have felt let down by the fact we've got this Liberal PM who's meant to be, you know, small business, small government, individual freedom, who has largely remained silent during this whole thing. All right. Uh, the other story we're going to talk about here. So, um, yeah, the situation in Tasmania with regards to free speech is pretty sad. Uh, so, Senator Liberal Senator Claire Chandler wrote an article in the Mercury bemoaning the rise of cancel culture and the way it silences people for their views about sensitive topics like sex and gender identification uh, and commented that you don't need to be a bigot to recognise the differences between the male and female sexes and understand why women's sports, single-sex change rooms and toilets are important. So, you know, that's uh, an, an opinion held by many. It's also disagreed with by many, but this is the nature of public agreement uh, and disagreement. You just get out there, you say your own piece, maybe write a uh, counter-op-ed, but not so when you live in Tasmania and you have the law on your side. So that Claire Chandler has uh, warned that she could be prosecuted for insulting the state's anti-discrimination commissioner in a rapidly escalating war on words. So a Tasmanian constituent wrote back to Chandler about the article asking whether the senator understood the difference between sex and gender. Chandler said, I do understand the difference. That is why I've made the point in my article that women's sports, women's toilets and women's change rooms are designed for people of the female sex and should remain that way. Now, anti-discrimination commissioner in Tasmania, Sarah Bolt, said Chandler's comments in the email were problematic. A reasonable person is likely to anticipate a person who is a member of the LGBTQ plus community and gender diverse community would be humiliated, insulted, offended, uh, or intimidated. So Pete, if you are a reasonable person and you think it is like you are likely to anticipate a person who was a member of these communities being insulted, the law can silence you. Oh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, like I think that the discussion around you know, public facilities for transgender people is an important discussion and we have to have that discussion respectfully. But the idea that you can't say female toilets are for women and you might get fined or something is unbelievable. Uh, in addition to that, it wasn't just those comments to the constituent that got her in trouble. It was that She got uh, subsequently informed by Equal Opportunity Tasmania that legal action can be taken against any person who uses insulting language towards any person exercising any power under the Anti-Discrimination Act and warned that those who hinder or use insulting language against the commissioner can be fined. So it's not just the fact that she said those words about the um, about uh, bathrooms or whatever. It's 
they actually warned her if you offend the commissioner, you can get in more trouble. So you can't say whatever this woman's name is, Sarah Bolt. Oh, any relation? No. I, I, like, uh, I was going to save this till later in the segment, but since you ask, like, people don't understand the second people hear my surname, like what a trigger that is for people to go, oh, are you related? Because it's, it's not a very common surname. So for Sarah to have risen to like the position of the Anti-Discrimination Commissioner in Tasmania would have had a lot of conversations going, no, I'm not related to him, which makes me laugh a bit inside. I'd- I would love to be at the Christmas dinner with Sarah Bolt, Andrew Bolt, James Bolt, and I think your mum's probably the fiercest of the lot, wouldn't she be? Is that right? Uh, she's definitely not related, Pete. <laughs> anyway, so, but the fact is, right, they said you can't insult her. Like, you can't insult, you can't say Sarah Bolt's an idiot. If you say Sarah Bolt's an idiot, that apparently is something that you was, can be... All right, sorry, let's let's dump that because, no, actually, let's get sued in Tasmania. Let's do it. Yeah, no, exactly right. In Tasmania, I think... Uh, the one thing I would add is has got a bit of a track record in this. We remember Archbishop Porteous uh, circulated a, what was it, leaflet in favour, a booklet in favour of same-sex marriage back in 2015. Um, and he got dragged before the commission. It was like, it was actually, a le- like, um, or gay marriage was actually illegal at that time. So he was he was promoting the government, like, law, and he got in trouble for that. So Tasmania has a bit of a track record. But, but this is extraordinary, James. Uh, no, and then the overarching point, which is very serious, is if a sitting senator can't say what she thinks about a subject, and a you know a member of the clergy can't say what they think about the subject, like yeah. what what uh, if regular Tasmanians know that they can come for them too. Like you talk about defenders of freedom of 18C. Defenders of 18C have always said. Okay, this is just something that we use to stop these extreme far-right groups saying these hateful things. No, it's not. These are the kind of laws that stop sitting liberal senators from saying what they think. That's as mainstream yeah. as you can get. The sitting liberal senator. The, is This is extraordinary. And ordinary people say it and think, well... I better be quiet then. It has this, it's like, it's intentionally has this chilling effect on debate. Like that's the whole point of these laws. Um, it has this chilling effect on debate throughout the community because most people aren't as powerful as um, Chandler and can't defend themselves. So they just won't say it. And it, they're not, you know, incredibly horrendous opinions. Like women, female toilets are for women is like a pretty mainstream opinion. Um, so yeah, it's, it's the whole intention of these things is to get people to be quiet. All right, let's go to Heroes and Villains. This is the Grunt the Pig Freedom Snore for people that stand up for liberty and justice around the world. Peter, who is your hero this week? Well, people might remember back in January, it was a simpler time, uh, and Lawrence Fox, a British actor, burst onto the scene in a political sense because he was already a reasonably famous actor when he was on BBC Question Time, which is their equivalent of Q&A, and he went bunter. Uh, He talked about the media's treatment of the Duchess of Sussex uh megan which was being said that because they were you know picking on her it was said that that was racist she he said it's not racism we're the most tolerant lovely country in europe he also talked about uh climate change and how silly blah blah blah, blah. oh no he, he talked about celebrities being hypocritical on climate change anyway he started his own political party described or, or it's in the process of being set up described as a kind of ukip for culture wars he's called it reclaim uh it's purpose is to oppose laws that undermine freedom of expression like we were just talking about in Tasmania uh, to ensure public 
institutions like the BBC are free from bias and to preserve and celebrate our shared national history, cultural inheritance and global contribution. And I think, uh, so it's not left-wing, it's not right-wing. He sort of acknowledges the fact that those distinctions don't matter that much anymore or they at least matter less than they used to. And he summed it up well when he said, the people of the United Kingdom are tired of being told that we represent the very thing we have in history stood together against. So that to me seems like a pretty worthy ambition. And he's already raised a million pounds and he's my hero this week, Lawrence Fox. Good stuff. My hero this week. So last couple of months make you feel pretty small as an individual. Like I just think the powers that the governments can have to just completely take away liberties in the course of like an hour and um, just you, you feel kind of small. You feel just as subservient to the government and that you can't really fight back. So I just want to highlight a story that shows that you can. So listeners will know that Victoria's been under a well Melbourne's been under a curfew now for a few weeks it just got removed on Sunday uh but the circumstances of being removed are quite controversial because it was supposed to be in for another month but uh, and like none of this can be proven it's before the courts right now but it is interesting so Michelle Lolio is a restaurant owner who challenged the curfew in the courts and uh that case is starting today it's interesting that you know, you just follow the. You can just look at what's happened for the government's responses. They try to keep some of the documents that made it so that the curfew came in. They've tried to keep them suppressed and make sure the public can't come out. And then they try to ditch the curfew the day before the case. And the question was, would the case still go through if the curfew is not there anymore? But this is really interesting, and it's the stuff that we found out about the curfew. We found out uh, that. People haven't really called for it. The the person that did sign off on it had only two documents that they looked at to say that we should have a curfew. Uh, that uh, one of those like the document and the stats that from the documents that she used to rely on the curfew uh, was just. Sorry, let me just get it. So the two documents that contained the data were a daily outbreak summaries report and a COVID-19 intelligence briefing. And the important statistic that she took into account from that document was the number of cases with an unknown source because it just suggested community transmission from people that weren't diagnosed and likely weren't aware they had the virus. Now, if you're telling me that that supports the idea that we need a nine to five curfew every single night all across the city, then uh, you're more paranoid than I am. But it's the idea that now that the curfew's dropped, the case is still going ahead, that little people can fight back against the government, even when they have the ability to just set whatever they want under emergency services. It's just a really nice story to see. Absolutely right. And she is in the hospitality sector, so she would have really been suffering through this period. And we know that there are activists like the mad effing witches who are going after small businesses for stuff like this, which is absolutely disgraceful. We talked about it on the show last week. So good on her. And I hope that she gets the outcome she desires. All right. So now we talk about our villains of the week. The Extinction Rebellion run fake. Extinction Rebellion fake nudie run. Roll the tape. As Extinction Rebellion protests enter their sixth day. This is for those who have been a villain this week. James, who have you got? So we talked to Satya later in the show about Amy Coney Barrett being Trump's Supreme Court nominee pick. This is the last time I ever have two coffees before a show. I am as <laughs> tongue-tied as I've ever been in my life. But anyway, Amy Coney Barrett is the Supreme Court pick. Now, Amy Coney Barrett has a large family and she has adopted two children from Haiti. And these children were part of the procession and they got to meet the president and they were like, there was a lot of photos of the big family all together, big happy smiles. And... 
because the internet is accessible, people started to go, okay, well, you know, what what are the circumstances of those uh, Haitian children being adopted by Amy? And I want to hone in on one, which is Ibram X. Kendi, who was a number one best-selling author in the US. People might have heard of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Jack, the CEO of Twitter, has donated $10 million to this guy, so pretty influential thinker. Regardless of what you think of me, it is pretty influential. Here's what he's uh, tweeted about that family. Some white colonizers adopted black children. They civilized these savage children in the superior ways of white people, adopted civilized savage and superior being in quotation marks, uh, to these savage children in the superior ways of white people while using them as props in their lifelong pictures of denial while cutting the biological parents of these children out of the picture of humanity. Now, if that is your first reaction to just seeing a family of seven people, two of them adopted from Haiti, you're a pretty sick individual. If, if you just can't even for one second put aside your own politicals and just go, maybe that's just a happy family. Maybe they just adopted them because they fell in love with them and that's it. And the other thing I want to point out, like there was a classic sketch that went around and it, I mean, it's this idea that a lot of people hold now. When you sound incredibly broke, you can also sound incredibly racist at the same mm. time. And here's a pretty good indicator of that. Now, I would say that tweet is pretty racist. You know who else thought it was... But you know who thought it was a really good idea? Richard Spencer, the far-right activist who retweeted it saying, not wrong. Now, if you're getting retweeted by a person who was pretty much a Nazi, then what you said might just be a teensy, teensy, teensy little bit racist. Imagine the, that bloke when he saw that retweet. He would have been like, oh, no, this has not gone how I thought it would go. Um but it's important to... So he, he's not just some random. As you mentioned, he's like a number one selling author about this kind of stuff. And it's important to note that this has flipped on its head because it used to be when I was a kid, I went to a multicultural primary school in Melbourne and there were a lot of kids that were different races from their parents because the, the parents were mixed with different races. Um, and the idea that you would suggest that they weren't... That it was racist that the kid would be a different race from the parent, that was racist, right? That's now flipped on its head. So it's important to know note how that's happened in not a very long time. Um, and when we say this stuff that, that, that the modern view on racist or the postmodern view on racist, racism is um, completely changed from what it used to be, it's like, that is your example. It absolutely has. All right, my one. Have you got any more on that or are you good? No, no, you go, go right ahead. Okay, so it was revealed last week that taxpayers paid $30 million for land to build the second runway at Western Sydney Airport. Now, this uh, airport won't open until 2026. And I don't think the runway is going to open until 2050. Uh, but anyway, the Australian National Audit Office found that the federal government paid $26.7 million too much for the runway. It was actually only worth $3.1 million. So that's 10 times too much, James. Uh, the ANAO concluded the department did not exercise appropriate due diligence and that its operations fell short of ethical standards. They, mobbed, they bought it off. Leppington Pastoral Company uh, have paid $58,000 in donations to the Liberal Party in 2018-2019. Uh, there's no accusation that this is just a bribe or anything like that, but it is important to note that so people don't say, oh, you didn't say this. Anyway, the lesson here, James, the lesson here is we are going to have this absolute bonanza over the next few months, well, the next few years as governments around Australia claim that they're, you know, we're going to be the infrastructure state or we're going to get the economy going. The only people that can get the economy going is the private sector. Anytime the government says they're going to get the economy going, they're lying. This is an example is an example of the way governments stuff things up. The, the, the private sector is the only way we can do it. Um, they're not good at doing stuff in the market. They pay over the odds. Every contractor worth their salt knows, and I don't know what those security guards in Melbourne charge, but every contractor worth their salt knows that you overcharge the government. You just add 10%. This was added about 1,000%. But yeah, we're going to see a lot of this stuff. Don't believe it. 
I just think the purchase was we cannot have another situation where people can write it's the new version of the castle. Like the second that land use for an airport came up, people were like do whatever it takes, do not have this go to the courts, do not have this be a media story because the headlines just write itself. It's funny that you should mention that, James, because there was a sort of a decade-long uh, dispute about compulsory acquisition with regards to. I'm not sure if it was specifically this product, this part of, piece of land, but it was this company, Leppington Pastoral Company. Not quite the same fit because they are billionaires, but same theory. It's just too easy. All right, that is it for the start of the show. Let's now go to our interviews. Okay, we now welcome on back to the show, the IPA's Director of Communications, resident spin doctor, I think we're going with, maybe PR guy, which is one of Evan's favorite Twitter accounts going right now. But anyway, Evan Mulholland, welcome back to the show. How are you going? Thanks for having me, guys. Very well. All right, so Evan, last week we put out the results of a poll that the IPA commissioned, and uh, I just want like we've already run through it earlier in the show, but we'll just run through it again. So this the poll asked Victorians to agree or disagree with the statement: the Victorian government ministers responsible for mismanagement of the hotel quarantine program should resign. Fifty-four percent agreed, twenty-six percent neither agree nor disagree, twenty percent disagree. Now, what does the just on that poll and the other ones that we asked there? What are the results telling you? Well, it tells me that Victorians believe in the Westminster tradition of government under which we operate, which is the minister ultimately is the accountable one. The minister is the one that uh, Victorians elect as either a member of parliament or a member of the upper house, who then forms the government to become a minister that's accountable over their departments. Uh, We don't elect bureaucrats, therefore, they're not the ones who are ultimately responsible. It is the ministers who make the decisions, who make the calls, who are meant to ask the questions that should be responsible for the overseeing of big programs like this. And the majority of Victorians agree. The majority of Victorians agree that uh, the ministers responsible for the hotel quarantine program should resign. Evan, uh, the, the results of the poll were far more critical of um, the news poll that came, far more critical than the news poll, which came out last week, which shows that approvals for Andrews and other premiers around the country continue to be pretty strong. What do you make of the difference between those two polls? Yeah, and I think uh, our members would have seen in, in John Roskam's email uh, on Saturday that, uh, you know, the difference between the news poll and uh, our poll is that the news poll only polled about 600 Victorians. Our poll polled over 1,000 Victorians. But I think you've got to delineate from people who support Daniel Andrews and the people that want the coronavirus issue fixed, want to get on with their lives. And I think what the news poll did was basically merge the two. People who supported both, uh, maybe uh, people who supported one or the other ended up being put in the same bucket. Our polls have really delved into the specifics. Like, do you think Daniel Andrews has mismanaged the crisis? 48% of people uh, agree with that proposition, uh, while only 32% disagree. So uh, I think uh, narrowing down in those specifics really gets the people that were on both sides that were put into the same column and really uh, goes to the views of what, what Victorians are thinking at the moment. So we had Mikakos resign on the day of the polls. So I don't know if you're treating that as a big win for not only the IPA, but also yourself as a person that was doing yep. the most media big for scale. the poll. Yep. <laughs> within, within hours of it coming out, Evan Mulholland had claimed it. But um, yeah, so Mikakos seems to be the scapegoat that the Victorian government are going with. We saw Daniel Andrews basically throw her under the bus on the day and even Mikakos' statement... Uh, 
went to the effect of saying that she wasn't resigning because she felt responsible. She was resigning because Daniel Andrews' statements to the inquiry made her feel responsible and she couldn't work for that. But surely the problem is a bit deeper than just Makarkos. This is something that other people have to go as well. Absolutely. And all the ministers kept talking about this idea of shared accountability. And ultimately, uh, the Premier's department should have had oversight of that. The Premier should have had oversight of that. The Premier, the day after the, the day of the National Cabinet meeting, pointed to uh, the ADF involvement in hotel quarantine, as did his media statement, literally in black and white, thank the Prime Minister for the, for the ADF involvement. So there's all sorts of responsibility to be shared, and Jenny McCarkos is all but one of them. The Premier should share that responsibility as well. But I think what we've found out through this inquiry, uh, and, and you know, the, the only really one of the main details we've found out is the cops did not want a bar of helping with hotel quarantine. They were meant to, they were asked to, and they did not want to at all, which is where they've said, you know, hotel security... It's basically one of the only examples of where the fact that private security would be used has come out in evidence. Uh, and basically everyone's just carried on like someone's made that decision. But, you know, from what we've been told and what we can see, no one actually made that decision in the first place. So, Evan, uh, what do you think Dan Andrews should resign as well? Do you think surely that's the natural outcome of this? I think so. I think he's been responsible for the deaths of over 700 Victorians. He's been responsible for Victoria's second wave. He's uh, unleashed so much hardship through his lockdowns to countless small businesses who will never see the light of day again. You walk through the CBD of Melbourne or Chapel Street and see for lease signs on every second or third shop. It's absolutely heartbreaking. But the decisions of his government uh, uh, that he should have been accountable for have resulted in this absolute hardship on, on Victorians. Now, he claims the health minister should have known. But what we know is that he did know. He did know and he should be accountable as the Premier of the state uh, for decisions made under his government. Ultimately, the buck stops with him. And therefore, he should uh, resign and let someone else deal with the economic fallout that he's caused. There's another element to this, which you know I'm talking with over the weekend, which is let's take Makarkos out of word that she didn't know, like her that her department didn't brief her about all the stuff that was going on with hotel quarantine, and let's also take Daniel Andrews. It is word that he didn't know that uh, ADF forces were available to him, and his own uh, department secretary basically shot it down. Just said, "Yeah, thanks, mate. We'll look into it." Is it the case that like okay, accepting them at their word? Do we just have like this out-of-control public sector that don't even feel the need to talk to the people that we elect to represent us about these key decisions that are being made? They're just like, okay, those are just the people that sign on the dotted line where we tell them we know how to run things. Well, the the, the, the public sector in Victoria has real issues um, and we've seen that with contact tracing. We've seen decades where of a public sector and public sector unions that are focused more on pay rises and a focus more on the size of the public service. They've added tens of thousands, I think 30 to 60,000 public servants uh, uh, just since 2014. Um, and not actually focused on, you know, specific things like IT upgrades that would have helped with the contact tracing system. So they didn't have to use a fax machine. Um, so, you know, to your point, I, I think it's uh, someone has to take responsibility here and it's not actually meant to be the bureaucrats you can you can pick a department secretary and say they weren't the one that passed it on 
But the reason we have ministers are so they're accountable to the public. And part of that is not just ticking off on things that come up on the, uh, from the department, but it's also questioning the policy process when it comes up to the ministers, questioning what's not in the brief as well as what is in the brief. That's what ministerial accountability looks like. And that's what we're not seeing in Victoria. Yeah, that contact tracing thing, like I can understand how at the start of the whole thing it might be underfunded and not have a very good system, but I don't get how six months into it we still have substandard contact tracing. Anyway, speaking of contact tracing... Or just any uh, government department that still has a fax machine. Yeah, exactly. That's just incredible too. (laughs) There was some funny meme out there that I saw about how um, they were considering investing in a second fax machine to improve the process. Uh, So doubled. (laughs) Yeah, double the the speed. Evan, what did you think of the roadmap on Sunday? Um, it wasn't really much. Uh, uh, you know, the, the the government tries to spin this away as you know good news for Victorians for doing such hard work. But when you in, when you enforce such draconian restrictions uh, on on Victorians and then give them two percent back of what they had in the first place, it's not really a reward. So what they've done is allowed childcare to come back. That's really important uh, for people working. They've allowed minders to come over. Uh, people's homes to look after children. They've allowed some heavy industry back uh, in warehouses and things like that. Uh, but, it, it, I mean, it's it's not much, um, uh, you know, some industrial work allowed. Most people, most small businesses aren't included in that. Uh, most regular workers still have to work from home. Uh, any chance of, you know, getting your small business back going or reopening your pub is still really on the never-never. Uh, they said that they were... Uh, pursuing a suppression strategy, uh, but it, it's clear they're pursuing this fanciful elimination strategy and eradication strategy in the form of Minister Jenny McArcos tweeted today that we're almost at eradication, which is, uh, I think, her saying the quiet part out loud um, and revealing that what we've known all along, that they are pursuing this fanciful eradication strategy. And, you know, this strategy towards zero cases it's never going to work. There's always going to be outbreaks. Zero cases actually means zero jobs. It actually means zero small businesses and zero hope for Victorians. They can never get to a sense of normal again. I think Mikakis knew exactly what she was doing. That's what I reckon. That's what I reckon. I think that's been the government policy since day one. It just didn't test well in focus groups and free from those focus groups, she can say what she wants. Now, this roadmap (laughs) that the government updates, it sort of stands at odds with what is happening in New South Wales, where Victoria... It's like, what level of lockdown do we need? But New South Wales is, okay, what's our level of contract chasing that we need to keep up with this? I mean, New South Wales, uh, two days straight of zero community cases, despite uh, all the problems that they've had in the past, whereas Victoria, we're still thinking, okay, which exact lockdown measures need to stay? So what are the differences between the approaches to you and like why should Victoria be following New South Wales? Well, I think it was like seven or eight years ago, the New South Wales government here invested heavily in their IT systems they got of, of their public service they got ex, their outside experts in uh, to overhaul the computer systems of the public service and uh, the best example I can use of doing that is you know, not only does it help exactly not only does it help with contract tracing because it's all on the one database uh, but other simple things and I'll give you a clear example of what uh, between Victoria and New South Wales um, so the New South Wales border closed right uh, the, the Albury-Wodonga border people needed border permits. Now, within 24 to 48 hours, they had uh, a 
bought a permit that was able to be accessed through the New South Wales Service New South Wales app. Uh, people could go into a Service New South Wales shop and get it really, really quickly. They had that going within 24 to 48 hours. But take Put that in comparison with the Victorian system where to get a permit, a worker permit, uh, to go into into work or to go somewhere that you need to go, you need to go to a website and download a Word document, and then fill it out and print it out or keep it on your phone. I mean, it's, it, 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 New South Wales are clearly streaks ahead of this game, and Victoria, you know, Daniel Andrews for months was claiming the contact tracing system was fine; they were keeping on top of it. They've got you know thousands of people working on this, but the the, the what's clear is that systems are failing they don't speak to each other for example why they've had to use the fax systems is because all the gps that they need to speak to and all the hospitals that they need to speak to run on completely different systems to the public service so it's not streamlined at all and that creates the need for more public servants uh, and this is proven in new south wales you don't need as many public servants if you've actually got a good computer system that you can work with that can streamline things like red tape for small business, like act, like you know interactions with government, and that's clearly where Victoria's failed, and it's co- literally cost lives. Greg Sheridan had a fantastic piece about that in the Oz a week or two ago about how you know like the Victorian government, the bureaucracy has been dominated by Labor for the better part of a decade, longer than that. If you look back over the last thirty or forty years, and his point was that. In progressivism, it's more about the gesture and, and looking like saying the right thing and doing the right thing rather than actually governing. And that's why New South Wales yeah. has ended up in a better position than Victoria. You should check it out if uh, you haven't already read it. Now, mate, what do you make of the conspiracy theory about New South Wales hiding cases? Do you reckon that's a goer or not? <laughs> I saw some things going on on Twitter about that. I just think it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. And the reason why New South Wales has had to ha- had zero community transmission for a few days now is because they've kept on top of their cases. They've, um, you know, people that have gotten a case, they've tracked them down, uh, they've isolated them and they've found their close contacts and they've got them all tested. Uh, that's what you need to do. In Victoria, you had a situation where people weren't getting contacted for over a week. You had a situation where two days after an elderly person's funeral, who died of COVID, all of their relatives received a text message to say that uh, you should get tested for coronavirus because you're a close contact. I mean, it's outrageous the delays they were. There were specifically long delays in regional Victoria, but there were delays everywhere in Victoria. And that's the reason why the Victorian system is so bad. It's not because it's a Liberal government, so there's this big conspiracy to hide cases. It's just the fact of the matter is that they're better at getting on top of cases. So when you do have an outbreak in hotel quarantine, it's all sorted within a few weeks because they've kept on top of the cases and they've they've able they're able to minimise the spread of the virus, which did not happen in Victoria. Yeah, I just say if you're First reaction to hearing about low case numbers is anger and suspicion. Probably just spend a bit of time with yourself, like just really figure out the inner machinations of your mind. Now, let's move on to another state, Queensland's election. That's coming up pretty soon. Now, I reckon the Sarah Kasem story was a big blow for Palaget. I think the public really sided with Sarah in that one and the border policy wasn't as popular as it might have been. What do you reckon that's going to have as an impact on the election? Well, I think the the... You know, they loved to, the poll and focus group, and I think they spent about half a million dollars on, on taxpayer-funded polling, uh, which, 
you know, a, a, about two weeks after that happened, um, they uh, opened the border with ACT. I think, um, as I've said a while ago, you know, the border po policies might have been popular at the time where there were outbreaks, but the closer, the closer we get to Christmas, the more unpopular these policies are going to be. Is is Anastasia Palaszczuk? Is is Mark McGowan? Is Stephen Marshall? Is whatever the guy's name in in Tasmania? Seriously, going to tell people they can't visit their families for Christmas? Like, you know, I think you know the clear case of a good job well done has been New South Wales, and I think they're on the record saying as soon as things get uh, back to normal in Victoria, they want to open the border again because. It, the economy actually matters. And I think more people will realise as we go on, decisions governments make actually matter. Like decisions governments make actually matter to the economy and act, can actually affect anyone. I think if there's any good thing about um, this virus and this pandemic is that people will put a lot more scrutiny on state governments and the decisions they make. It's not just something where you can vote for the opposite party that's in federally. They actually can really affect your lives in a really bad way. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. There's a massive, massive, much bigger focus on state politics now and going forward than there has been in the past. One more, mate. So, how, what role do you think the election will play in Queensland if it's a big swing against Labor uh, or even a loss to Labor? Will that be the end of the hard border policies? Um, I think there'll be a much greater sense of pragmatism uh, in terms of the borders. Uh, I mean. Queensland is reliant on interstate travellers as it's reliant on international travellers, but uh, much more so people wanting to discover their own country. And once we get to a sense of normality uh, post the outbreak in Victoria, there's so many people that want to uh, go to New South Wales, have a holiday and spend money there. And I think there's, you know, this just plays into the divide between Brisbane and the rest of Queensland. You've got uh, so many people that are, you know, small tourism operators, small businesses, hotel industry, uh, pubs in, you know, regional Queensland that are so reliant on people coming through from interstate. Uh, and so Queensland, you know, I, I think you'll have some more announcements towards uh, election day on, on, you know, opening the border further with New South Wales. They've had this bubble. Uh, but, you know, this goes the same for not only Queensland, but for WA as well. Um, you know, they're briefed in WA, they're briefing to the press that, you know, they might keep the borders closed till March because it's popular. I mean, this exposes this lie that this was about the, you know, listening to the experts and this was based on health advice. It's absolutely not. And so when that popularity swings, I think we'll see more borders open. One more uh, on the really Queensland. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Bolts. Just one more on the Queensland election before we finish up, mate. What about the Broncos finishing last and also doing a gender reveal on the ground after finishing last? Do you think that will have a negative impact for the government? Uh, wouldn't have a clue because I'm not following that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Mate, you're meant to be on top of this stuff. Nah. Yeah, the um, the election will swing on that gender reveal. Sorry, good, good question, Pete. All right, uh, Evan Mulholland, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, boys. Okay, we're now welcome back onto the show, Satya Mara, policy analyst from the Reason Foundation, here to tell us all about what's going on in America at the moment. Satya, welcome back. Hey, good to be here. All right, I want to start with the Supreme Court nomination. So Trump has no nominated Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court pick. Uh, pretty huge decision, a lot of controversy around it. So what does she bring and what is the significance of the pick? 
I think it's it's important to note that the job of a judge, right, especially on the Supreme Court or even the Australian High Court, uh, isn't to actually impose a political agenda, or political beliefs, or to sort of be an activist for a cause. That's the job of the legislature. Uh, the most important thing for a judge to do is to apply and uphold the Constitution, to do their job, basically. And the problem is in America, there's been a very activist culture around the Supreme Court. And you often have parties running and they'll say, vote for me and I'll pick judges who will do things you like. That's not the point of the Constitution. The Constitution is meant to be a constraint on government and therefore a constraint you know, on the majoritarian rule of what you have in pure democracy. And I think what Amy, uh, what Amy Coney Barrett really brings to the table is that she is, you know, has a strong record as a constitutionalist. She's come out saying, my personal opinions don't matter. I'm here to uphold the constitution as it is. Uh, and her record, you know, people are putting her up like she's this conservative paragon. She's someone who's going to, you know, create a theocratic state of something. And it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, she's got a pretty good record right now. You know, obviously criminal justice is a hot topic. She, uh, you know, has ruled against qualified immunity, uh, you know, for bad police officers. Uh, as an example of her, you know, doing her job as a judge and not just being partisan conservative. So I'm really keen to see what more comes from her. So uh, one of the reasons people vote for Trump is because they want him to choose judges that they like. He's chosen a couple of Supreme Court judges and he's chosen hundreds of judges in the federal courts. Um, do you think... Now, James thought of this question. I'm actually quite impressed with it because I hadn't thought of it before. And that is that the fact that if he picks this Amy Coney Barrett, that's three judges, uh, conservatives would have a bit of a 6-3 majority on the court. Do you think a number of conservatives might actually go, well, our work is kind of done. I actually don't have to vote for Trump this time because I feel like he's done the job on the courts. Do you think that is a, is a phenomenon? Because, yeah, as I said, I hadn't thought of that and... I was impressed with you. Sorry, so could, you, could you repeat the last bit again? As, as uh, he was impressed with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> was... We don't have to repeat that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, so just the fact with that, um, that, that they've now got a 6 3 majority, they would feel like they maybe don't have to vote for Trump because they've actually got a huge majority that will last for a, a number of years. All right. Um, no, I don't think that'll be the case at all. I think it'll actually rally his supporters. I think they will basically come out and say, finally, here's a guy who does exactly what he said he'll do. Uh, and he's someone that we can, you know, there's, there's one thing about Trump, you know, he keeps his supporters very, very loyal. You know, he'll never go out there insulting them. The moment the media comes out saying, aren't you going to condemn these guys at this rally who were holding up, you know, anti-vaccination signs or something? You know, he himself, I don't think is an anti-vaccination person at all, but he will never actually outwardly insult anyone who's come out there, you know, in support of him. Uh, and I think, you know, he's bought such a level of loyalty uh, from people who feel like he'll do things no one else will do as a conservative in his position. Uh, I think it will not go against him. Um, and in fact, I think the Democrats have in a way, you know, they, they have a bit of an own goal in this, right? So, so their threat is if you fill in that vacancy, then we will threaten and we will pack the courts. We will add extra justices and we'll make it go our way. Now, now the idea of simply adding more judges to the court because it suits you, that is radical. That is far more radical than appointing a judge uh, in the last you know, hundred days of your term. Uh, and I think it's going to backfire. A lot of middle of the road voters will not look very favorably upon that. And they really need to win the swing states with those moderate voters. So we'll see how that goes. 
Yeah, I thought that same thing about another push, which is Democrats in Congress introducing a bill that would set an 18-year term limit for Supreme Court justices. I just think that's a bit like, you know, throwing the toys out of the cot because you didn't get your way. And I don't know if that sort of wanton disregard for what's in the Constitution is going to play that well for them in a couple months' time. Yeah, it's true. And at the end of the day, you know, even if you have term limits on Supreme Court justices, it's not going to necessarily make that go in their favor. It might backfire on them completely. Yeah, I'm sort of reminded of, you know, when Bill Shorten in Australia brought in the Fair Work Commission and he said, this is such a great thing. This is gonna, they're gonna, be, they're gonna have all these decisions that will work for our people. You know, they'll do what we want them to do. And it turns out the commission actually was fairly independent um, and he wasn't very happy with that. So you know, they should be careful about the unintended consequences of anything that they do. And that's true for any side of politics. Satya, last week, James said that the impact of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death had on American politics showed there was too much power in the upper echelons of the judiciary in particular, but also the president uh, and the Congress. I gave him a light razzing for that statement. What do you think about that? Look, one of the best things about America is the fact that they have a very strong Supreme Court that is able to put a constraint on limits of power. And even Trump appointments like Gorsuch and Kavanaugh haven't always ruled in his favor. You know, they haven't voted along partisan lines often uh, because they do their job as judges. Uh, and it's very important in a country where the president can do so many things by bypassing Congress, uh, you know, issuing executive orders and, and so on. So the strong judiciary is actually a very excellent thing. And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg gets a lot of flack from the conservative side of politics, but she was actually a remarkable judge, you know, and she was very consistent. You know, she was as much a proponent of men's rights as she was of women's rights. She genuinely believed in equality. Um, and, uh, you know, that sort of, and she had a very good relationship with, Aunt, uh, you know, Scalia, who was known to be a very conservative judge. Um, and I think it's a good thing to see that. You need to have a strong court system that is willing to hold the government to account uh, and, the U.S. has that, and it should never lose that. Uh, I wasn't really having a go at the judiciary. It was more the idea that like there's way too much power in all forms right at the top. Like the, the idea that Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death can completely swing the future of American rights sort of shows that there's a bit too much. Uh, you know, there's like there's too many laws, there's too many regulations, there's too many things that can stand or fall the second someone dies. I just think that's a bit uh, of a bad system to have. Well, I mean, keep in mind, perception isn't always reality, right? People, uh, you, you know, the, the, there's been a lot of campaigning and a lot of fear mongering around, you know, now that there's an extra conservative in the court having replaced from Kelly Ginsburg, uh, their jurisprudence is just going to go the other way. Roe v. Wade is going to be overturned. Uh, you know, all these different things, which, you know, whether any of that will actually happen remains up for question. You know, keep in mind, one of the things about conservative jurisprudence is that even if a judge might have an instinct in a particular case where they might think that the court in decades past interpreted it differently how they would have applied them all, um, they, there's still this pressure as a conservative to uphold things the way they've long been established in practice. Um, so I, I don't think that's you know as much of a concern as it seems to be. And look, the idea of there being too many rules and laws up at the top open to be changed by people in positions of power, I mean, that's in every single liberal democracy in the entire world. You know, in fact, I can't think of one country where that isn't the case at all. So it's just the quirk of the system, which is unfortunately the best we can muster. So over the last, excuse me, over the last few days, Trump's tax returns have come out. Um, like most rich people, doesn't appear to have paid much tax. 
What do you reckon of this story? Do you think it will <clears throat> be an election issue or something that maybe the, the blue check marks on Twitter only care about? How do you think this will play out? Look, I think it's already pretty obvious that the only people who are moved by that story are people who already don't, don't support the president and just want another reason not like him. Uh, the other issue is it's not the fact that he didn't pay much tax. I mean, look, you know, every rich person minimizes their taxes. And it's just as income taxes, you know, doesn't factor in the company tax he paid and so on. Um, but the issue that probably is some sign of concern or speaks to his, you know, ability as a politician is probably the assertion that the reason why he paid such little tax is because he had a lot of losses in his business. Uh, now, we all know that businesses sometimes declare losses as a way to minimize their liability. Uh, but the idea that he could have actually had, you know, losses running for that many years doesn't make him look good. Whether that will actually make people not vote for him, I, I doubt it. I don't. I think the story is going to basically be a nothing burger. Uh, and yeah, like I said, it's not. It's not going to move too many people who were either on the fence or are supporting him already. Yeah, I can't imagine us hearing too much about it after the next debate, which is tomorrow, which uh, is what we want to ask you about it. So, um, this debate, there's a lot of hype around it is uh what you know what's going to happen and i just want to get the sense of like what's the excitement in america or is it more just i I, i'm not even looking forward to this right now i've already had too much politics i mean there's definitely a whole lot of the latter right but i think this debate will be very interesting because people aren't quite sure how you know joe biden's going to present or how he's going to go down you know he's had some issues off late uh you know in terms of seemingly going off script, as it were, or, you know, speaking a bit erratically. And there are some concerns around that amongst a lot of people, but I think uh, it should be an interesting debate. Uh, we can all predict exactly how Trump is going to go down. He's done the same thing in every single debate that he's done since 2016. I don't think there'll be any huge surprises coming out from him. I'm really keen to see, though, how Biden stands up and how he ends up coming across and presenting himself. I think the fact that him and his team have been limiting his appearances in public uh, for health reasons, supposedly, for this long, while Trump has been doing these huge rallies across the country, I don't think that's worked in his team's in his presidency's favor. I think it's actually helped Trump close the odds. Because when this started off, no one thought Trump really had a chance. And now we're seeing the odds slowly come closing in. So, you know, I think people will be interested to see what happens. Um, I'm not sure how big their expectations will be, but people will be watching. So, Satya, one of the reasons we get you on the show is because you are in... The United States, you're in Washington, D.C., you're a man on the ground in America. It seems so depressingly polarized from the outside America. Like, it's always a bit more full-on than Australia, to be fair, but it just seems like it's so polarized at the moment. What's it like on the ground? Is that is that impression correct, or is it a bit more sort of everyday life? You know, an interesting anecdote from a friend of mine over here. So she was telling me how in D.C., you know, the moment people in her workplace sort of found out that she has politics, she has, they were rude to her, they weren't very nice to her, you know, they would say things behind her back, and it was all quite ugly and rough. But then she said that she moved to a part of the heartland, she was somewhere in Indiana, I think, in a city that's not that much smaller than D.C., and it didn't matter. And she had friends of all different political persuasions, people were open-minded, and it was civil, and... You know, I think that there's this tendency, right, to focus on certain parts of the country, folks in certain spaces, which are filled with partisan people. But the average person on the street, you know, I've always maintained this, is movable, is open-minded. You know, they might latch onto some of the memes from one side or the other. They might be like, oh, yeah, Trump is a doofus, or, oh, yeah, you know, Biden is this or that. But 
they're open to have their minds change. They are ordinary people uh, like you and I, and you know the media will always have a bigger field day from presenting a civil war happening. You know, fear is one of the greatest motivators to actually turn on your TV uh, and start panicking. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Like, I can't imagine too many people in 2016 voted for Trump because he was a kind of character that they wanted their children to emulate. But I just think he spoke to a lot of the concerns that they had. Um, speaking of Trump's character, he's already called for Joe Biden to undergo a drug test both before and after tomorrow's election. Is that just the uh, tone we're setting for the next couple of weeks? Yeah, that's just Trump's tone. I mean, that's who he is. He's the playground bully. Uh, he's the guy who says flippant things. You know, he made a joke, I hope it was a joke, uh, that he would have an executive order uh, to stop Biden from becoming president. He's like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll do it. And everyone laughed nervously. Uh, it's just a part of the theatrics, the showmanship. You know, keep in mind, in 2016, he was all about putting Hillary in prison. And the moment he became elected, he actually completely dropped that because it was all part of the act. Uh, and I don't think this is any different. I just hate it when politicians don't follow through on their election promises. Now, Satya, every presidential election is important. Is this one more important? Uh, and what are the long-term implications, if any, or is it just another presidential election? I think this one is pretty important just because, uh, you know, we're at a very tense time in this country's history. Uh, we are going into an economic crisis that will probably be far worse than the GFC. Uh, racial tensions have culminated in a very bad way this year. Um, and I think for those reasons, this is particularly important. There's a lot of talk about how, you know, the, you, you know, people, many of whom are conservative actually, will come out saying uh, Trump needs to be defeated because he's, he's introduced a level of rhetoric and vitriol that is unseen in American politics. When the fact is, there's plenty of that on both sides. I don't like what about us. But look at Amy Comey Barrett, for example, being attacked by people in mainstream academia and the media because she adopted a child on orphan from Haiti and gave that child a good life. I mean, that's horrible. That is absolutely despicable. That's far worse than calling someone fat or ugly or stupid. Um, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, even if Trump does get reelected, which in my personal opinion, I think I would give him the, the edge at this point just based on what I've seen and the mood on the ground. But even if he gets reelected, it's only another four years. And once he's done, who knows what's going to happen. Um, I, I think the two-term two limit is actually a good system to have because uh, I don't know if, I don't know how things would be if he did any more than one more term. All right, interesting. Satya, we'll get you on as the American election winds down. So thank you so much for your time. Talk to you soon. Oh, and no where can people follow you on Twitter? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, thank you Terry, Sacha and Evan. Let's fly through some stories that have made us laugh this week. Pete, start us off, mate. Well, Bill Shorten's back, mate. He's back with a vengeance. We saw, we mentioned a few weeks ago where he called Scott Morrison a simp for Donald Trump. He's gone again. An audit came out this week from Services Australia in relation to robo-debts. Sorry, it came out about Services Australia in relation to robo-debts that is overseen by NDIS Minister Stuart Robert. Now, Bill Shorten is the shadow minister for NDIS. Um... And it, so Stuart Robert is, uh, was over, uh, what are they called? Services Australia, which did robo-debts, and also the guy that thought that the MyGov website was under cyber attack at one point um, when actually lots of people were just trying to access it at the same time. Anyway, in light of this, Bill Shorten has said, clearly that Mr. That was amazing. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I, just, I haven't thought about that for a while. I'm like, oh yeah, that was, that was incredible. <laughs> well, this is why 
Bill Shorten's gone down the route. He's gone down, James. He said, clearly Mr. Robert is what online gamers would call a noob. Someone who has absolutely no idea what they're doing. Australians are sick of the endless tech bungles from this digital noob. And as I mentioned, uh, Bill Shorten used to call, uh, previously called Scott Morrison a simp. James, what do you think? Yeah, just to, and he also put that in the headline. The headline of the media release was Audit Reveals Latest Fail from Noob Minister. I mean, look, we're all guilty of saying one joke that really landed really well, thinking yeah. we're on a hot streak, going for a second, <laughs> nah. <laughs> like, I don't think anyone said the word noob for 15 years. That's Unless what I was going to say. Yeah. Like, not since the days of AIM Messenger have I ever seen the word noob used in a sentence, unless it was completely ironic. But, you know, Bill Shorten thought he was hot. He wasn't. We've all been there. As regular listeners would know, I'm not the most online person, and I was like, I don't think noob's something that gets said anymore. Um, but yeah, no, nah, he should contact de- you. And if you, even you come out and say... I don't reckon, then he should absolutely abandon ship. I'm available anytime. Available anytime. And if you haven't heard it, that means it's cutting edge and everyone's using it. Yeah, yeah. It's Although like maybe- Peter Gregory. The second Pete knows about something, it's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit, of a bit of a commentary for my life, really. But uh, no, yeah, you're exactly right that he was red hot and just went one too many. We've all been- I, I, would, I would actually encourage people to go again. Because if he's gone once, it worked. He's gone the second time, it hasn't worked. I reckon What's one more little midway. Back? We, we've got to go mid-90s for this next oh, one. Like dweeb? Dweeb, yeah. I don't, that wasn't online though. That was just a just what people got called. Anyway. He's got to drop a ruffle. That's what he's yeah. going to do. Yeah, ruffle, ruffle copter. Yeah. Uh, all right. So I got another one here. Now, last week on the show, we were talking about some of the um, more outlandish tributes to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, including the uh, running commentary between her and... Roe v. Wade in heaven. I still mm. think that person thought Roe v. Wade was a person. I want uh, edition two. Where's, where's the second edition of that? Yeah, exactly. the, the sequel. Roe v. Wade uh, v. Ruth Bader Ginsburg number two. All right. But there was actually a pretty good one. So they had the memorial service in Washington, D.C. Uh, the coffin was there. It was public viewing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's trainer, like physical trainer, was there and solemnly did three push-ups in front of the casket, which is like, it was actually kind of nice to see. And I've got a few takes. First off, no days off. No days off. Never yeah. never without an excuse to get a quick set in. So to the end. credit to that guy. And I don't know, it's really nice. Who needs a 21-gun salute when you've got a two-cannon salute? Uh, <laughs> did you invent that? Did you think that yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason you wanted to do this segment. Okay, keep going. Uh, that's all I got. Do you, oh, okay. do you have anything? Well, I just wanted to note that this guy, apparently they had a really good relationship. He was her trainer for like 20 years and they worked out three times a week and blah, blah, blah. And he's actually written a book about the workout he did with her, uh, which is interesting. And I think that one of the things about going to the gym is actually it's more important for really old people than young people to go to the gym. Little fact for you, for you people listening at home, there might be in advanced years. All right, That's this is the funny segment of the show. Thank you, Peter Gregory. <laughs> and it was very, I found it very sweet. It was a sweet uh, gesture. Uh, speaking of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a couple of people bit the uh, ate the trash with the Ooh, Babylon yeah. Bee, Pete. Big time. Big time ate the trash. So uh, Babylon Bee, so it's a satirical news website. Everyone will probably know that, but if you don't, it is a satirical news website, which is sort of Christian-based, right-wing, conservative-based satirical uh, website. Anyway, they wrote an article saying NBA players are honouring the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg this week by wearing pretty lace collars, just like notorious RGB used to wear. And it had a image of LeBron James and a couple of other basketball players who I don't know, but James will know, wearing basically judge gowns that the Supreme Court judges wear. 
Uh, and there are all these tweets. Everyone thought it was real. Uh, someone wrote, this is why I love, I so love and respect LeBron. Someone responded to Trump saying, the NBA honor Ginsburg more than you uh, ever will. It had 1.9 million impressions. Uh, and I just love the idea that, you know, actually, you know what? I'm gonna, I, I don't actually blame Can I shout out one person before you get into that? One person who did retweet it was Drew Faust, the former Harvard president. <laughs> Sir, hand in your Harvard badge and gun. You are no longer associated with the university if you fall for something that stupid. Sorry, he's the, Pete, you go he's ahead. the guardian of like the legal tradition in the West. Anyway, I don't blame them because I reckon Adam Silver, that's the guy who runs the NBA, isn't it? Adam Silver. Correct. He's turned around to his office and gone, why did yeah, you guys think Gregory. of this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, who's Gregory? Yeah, he, he's basically caught his marketing team in and given them an absolute ear bashing because he said that we should have thought of this. Yeah, I just go, this is a bad look for the NBA because if your performative uh, protesting is this... Uh, standard that people think you would do this, then it's a bad look for you. <laughs> you don't look very cool if people go, I can see them doing this. Yeah, I can see them wearing a judge's gown as they run around on a basketball court. All right, um, last one I got. Uh, sorry, we've got the debate coming up tomorrow. I'm going to be definitely watching. We talked about it with Satya. Um, I, I don't really know what we want to do here. Uh, oh, actually, I do want to talk about one thing. So Trump wanting that drug test, which he wants before and after he wants Joe Biden to undergo a drug test and then tweeted today. Uh, well, he's turning it down. Wonder why that is. <laughs> if Trump's pushing this line, I think we have to call dead our dreams of Joe Rogan hosting a debate. Unfortunately, we will. Yeah, because although, yeah, he's obviously worried about him taking drugs during the debate though the fact that he wants i one think it's just like the adderall or whatever it's called here in australia but like the concentration stuff yeah, yeah but the fact that he said i want one before and after means he's worried about joe biden taking drugs on national tv uh, which is what he would do with joe rogan so yeah, yeah i think i think you're right no joe rogan for the debate unfortunately any predictions my prediction is so we're gonna yeah the thing that we think is going to happen now, the serious point of view is that serious, usually in these situations, the sitting incumbent president does badly in the first debate because the other person has had more time to prepare because the, the president's trying to run the country. So I don't think it'll be as big a train wreck this one as people predict it will be. But I do think that Trump is going to try a new term. So if it's like fake news, Sleepy Joe, all this stuff, he's going to hit us with a big one. And I think whether it lands or not will, be the, will dictate who wins the election because Any not all of them land. Of what it will be i don't know what it'll be james believe it or but not you just but reckon trump will use words that we haven't heard before <laughs> no but what i'm saying is if it lands <laughs> i know that was just too easy that was just too easy <laughs> i knew it was a bit weak coming in that this was a bit weak <laughs> but i couldn't think of anything else but uh what's yours anyway mate i uh, joe biden gets donald trump's name wrong that is both something <laughs> i think will be happening and something would be kind of funny to see i think joe biden stuffs up donald trump's name mr yeah, the course, Ronald maybe. Ronald, or oh. we'll have like that, that five second pause where he's trying to remember what his name is. But anyway, that's my prediction. Anyway, mm. that is it for the show this week. Thank you to Sadia and to Evan. If you like the show, make sure you're leaving us that review on iTunes. Helps us out with the ratings. Helps us out with getting new people. Speaking of getting new people, we're available on all podcast platforms and waving to the people watching us on YouTube and Facebook right now. So if you do have family and friends that would like the show, make sure you're telling us, uh, telling them about us. We also want to hear about them, but make sure you tell them about us. We also got Looking Forward, IPA's weekly podcast. 
uh, and all the other podcasts we do. The IPA with you, Gideon Rosman, has been doing an absolutely awesome job talking about the situation in Victoria and responding to people's emails and tweets to him. So go check that out. That's twice a week. That's more of a YouTube show than Podbean. So make sure you're checking that out on YouTube. Five favorite books, Australia's Future with John Roskam and Tony Abbott. Great looks, books of literature podcasts. We've got, uh, and Viral Banter. How can I forget Viral Banter? That is a great show as well. A uh, whole bunch of stuff that we have here at the IPA Podcast Network. So yeah, see you guys next week. Thanks all. See you guys. See you guys.